Hey, this is uh, Michael Coles. Uh, I'm the author of a book called Time to Get Tough, How Cookies, Coffee, and a Crash Led to Success in Business and Life. If you want to learn how to be a better communicator, first of all, you should listen to this show and listen to all the great guests that are on the show. And I'm very happy and proud to have been a part of it. So thank you all. Welcome to the Art of Communication, where entrepreneurs learn to grow their business more effectively through mastering their ability to connect to others. Whether you're looking to increase revenue, widen your network, or just getting others to buy into your vision, we'll help you dramatically transform your business and life by communicating more effectively, improving your leadership skills, and reinvesting time back into your family. You're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and your life. So let's start the conversation with your host, Greg Rice. Hey guys, today I had a great conversation with Michael Coles. Michael was has done so many amazing things. He was the founder of the Great American Cookie Company, which today is Great American Cookies, um, and 40 years later, still going strong. He was also CEO of Caribou Coffee, where he came in, was able to really turn the business around and actually took it public in just a year and a half. On top of those feats, he cycled across the country multiple times, setting a variety of records. And he's also author of Time to Get Tough, How Cookies, Coffee, and a Crash Led to Success in Business and Life, where he tells the story of, of, of the journey of all those successes that I kind of just talked about as, as well as a number of others. So we have a really great discussion. We, we talk about the importance of listening and where he really learned how to listen well. It comes from his first job when he was a 13-year-old um, and how he's leveraged that to drive his success. We talk about how he was able to drive buy-in from senior leadership at major corporations to drive his transformative visions um, and then really kind of take a 180-degree turn um, with models that were successful but that he, he saw a much better vision for. And we even get into what he learned about the importance of teamwork from setting cycling records riding across the country because it's definitely a team effort, as you'll hear. So Michael has accomplished so many amazing things, and, and this is just a really fascinating conversation. So anyone who is or aspires to be a leader should definitely get ready to take notes for this one. Michael, thank you for joining the Art of Communication podcast. Really excited to have you on today. Really excited to be here. You know, in, uh, with with COVID-19, it's nice to it's nice to see somebody other than my family. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm probably not yeah. the best person you can see, but hopefully, yeah, this is great. <laughs> this is great. Uh, that's funny. Uh, well, I, there's a ton of stuff I think we get we can get into. You have done so much in your career, fascinating, amazing career. So much I think we can learn from. But one thing I think I'd like to start off by getting into is. Through all the things you did, I know that there's been a focus around the importance of courage, right? The importance to take that step to get on the field. And, you know, I talked to a lot of folks who struggle to knock on that door to make that sale or to introduce themselves to that person they really want to meet. So I'd love to just start there because I know it's so central to your story and get your thoughts on the importance of courage and, and maybe the uh, how to best execute courage, if you will. So, you know, I, I think, first of all, that's a really interesting question because it would be hard for people that know me today to ever believe that I used to be very shy. And uh, I wouldn't say I was an introvert, but I would say I was shy. And I think I, beca- I, got, I became shy. I wasn't a shy kid until I was about 10. And when my dad went bankrupt, 
and we kind of lost everything. I, it wasn't, I don't even know so much that it was shy, but I just felt like I didn't belong. And so uh, communicating became something very challenging for me. And one of the things I learned early on, which was really a great thing to learn, even at 13 years old, and part of it had to do with my first job, because I would say up until I went to work for this man, Irving Settler, I ha- Irving taught me this. He, he told me basically that it was a, one of the great ways to communicate is to listen and not talk, you know, just let that person talk. And before you know it, that person becomes very engaged with you. And so I got out of my shyness by, I could, you know, I could, it wasn't like I was so shy that I couldn't introduce myself, but I would have a hard time starting a conversation. I always say something stupid. <laughs> it felt like, but, but by, you know, like when waiting on customers and Irving's taught you know talking to me about asking a customer you know you know so where do you live and uh, what, what kind what are you here looking for what are you going to some kind of an event or it you learn that people when they can talk about themselves and talk a little bit about what they're doing it just it becomes a, a real conversation and a, a real way of engagement and a real way to communicate I think that that's really uh, interesting and important. I think we often think about what we're going to say next, right? And we're not so focused on the other person. We don't ask that next question. We're not really trying to understand them. We're just trying to get our own point across. That can kill you in business, but can, it can also kill your personal conversations, right? And, and kill the depth well, you of know, them. Well, one of the things, you know, I, was, I, I started out, I mean, I was in sales and I went from a retail clothing store and then I went and became a salesman on the road. And uh, by the time I became a salesman on the road, I was, you know, very open, very prepared to be very outgoing. But I promise you, every time I would pull out the line that I was selling and put, bring the rack inside to a store, I was always very nervous. And basically, I would always try to get the customer to tell me about themselves. And, be, and even to this day, one of the great things I love to do, because I do a lot of public speaking, when I go to an event that has, you know, from 50 to, you know, 10,000 people that I've spoken to, I try to go into the audience and engage with some of the people in the audience. And whether I'm speaking to 10,000 people or 50, those few people that I got to talk to and find out why they came and what they do and all that, they become my conversation in, in an ability to communicate. It's the same thing when I was involved in sales, when I understood what a customer's needs were, what a customer's family was like, what a customer's goals were in in what they tried to do with their business, it became much easier for me to be able to communicate. You know, there's an old expression, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. Yeah. So, yeah. So I I think, I think listening is one of the great communication skills. Any keys that you could give folks on how to listen well? I know you mentioned, you know, I mean, there's obviously just pay attention to what they're saying and trying to get to understand them better, right? But any other, anything else you do when you're kind of engaging somebody to make sure you're really paying attention and listening well? Don't take your phone out of your pocket. Uh, yeah. Don't don't look around the person. Don't think about what you got to do next. Engage with them. Fully, fully engage. Pretend you're, you know, you're on a date. And, you know, if you plan on having a second date, 
you're probably <laughs> not going to do any of the three things I, you know, that I, you know, you're not going to do those other things. You're going to be fully engaged. And, uh, you know, I have a, a thing in my book. I talk about uh, the execution triangle, which is something I actually read in somebody else's book. And I give credit to it. But it talks about the three the three most important things to create great execution. And it probably, they are uh, skill set, tool set, and mindset. Custom, I would say that most businesses are really good about tools and skills. They, they know how to identify that. And the thing that's the least expensive for them to execute on is communication, which is mindset. How do you make sure everybody has the right mindset? And the thing that most people don't realize, they don't have the right mindset because they frankly don't understand why they're doing it. And it's the easiest thing, the least expensive thing for a company to do, which is to try to make people understand why you're making a change and try to also make them understand why it benefits not just the company, but ultimately how it benefits them. And that gets me to kind of another discussion I wanted to have with you. I, I think there's two examples specifically in the book around major change initiatives that you drove that I found really interesting. Uh, the first one was with the cookie company, right? And things were going fairly well and, and you decided to change the approach, right? That you were taking with the company, but it was hard to get folks on board with that, right? Uh, especially at first. So I'd love to hear how you kind of convinced folks to, first of all, I guess, how did you understand that you needed to change the vision and the approach? And then two, how did you get folks on board with that? You know, I'll give you an analogy, uh, which I think people will understand. If you, if you talk to most coaches or in, in the sports arena, they will tell you that the, the best athletes are the ones with the least gift. That the best athletes are the ones that have to really work hard to get to that high level of proficiency. And so I think that that actually is a characteristic of companies that are very good, but don't really understand how to become really great. The good is what holds them back. And at the cookie company, we were seven years old and we had been doing better every single year, but our growth was slowing down. I think the way we operated was okay. But there were so many things about the company that I knew that needed to change. But I knew I, I didn't want to demand it. I wanted to have a team that would get on board. And so in 1984, when I came back from breaking my bike cycling record, uh, I came back and saw the company in a very different way. And I brought my team together. I realized that we had become very complacent over seven years and that we had not really evolved the company. And we didn't, we didn't, we now could not just have an evolution. We had to have a revolution and I couldn't get the team to see it. So I brought everyone in after I sent everyone home for two weeks. I sent, brought them back into my office and I said, okay, what, what do you guys want to do? What are we going to change? And I couldn't get them to change anything. They were like, oh no, you know, we're just fine. And so, and again, I don't know where this came from, but I remember thinking to myself, I got to get them to to think differently. And when I looked at them and I said, okay, let's look at it this way. If we were starting a cookie company today and the best company out there is us, how would we compete against us? What would we do to challenge us? And it was like, 
watching eyeballs just open up because it was like it took all the blinders off. I said, every idea is a good idea. Let's just talk through it. And we broke the company down into every single piece that we we had as a business. And then we said, do we need to change this? And by the time we were done, as I as you know in the book, we changed everything. We changed the name of the company. We changed our product. We changed the way we sold our product. We changed the way we trained our people. We changed everything about the business. And I am absolutely convinced that in 1984, it's seven years in, very successful, making money, doing well. If we hadn't done that, we would never have made it three more years. We would have been gone. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that you you didn't necessarily give them the tactical mission. This is how we're going to do this. You helped them see it differently so they could be a part of developing that mission and getting buy-in from them by doing that. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a there's a great expression about leadership. I was very fortunate to go to a dinner one night where Colin Powell was speaking. And just by circumstance, they sat me next to him. And I remember sitting next to him through this whole dinner. And I'm sure you've had this experience where you're sitting with somebody that you really admire, really famous, and every thought, every question rolls around in your head sounds completely stupid. And so you (laughs) sit there and you don't say anything. And then, you know, suddenly you realize, well, he's about to get up to do his speech. And if I don't say something to him now, I'm going to miss this opportunity. I remember I turned to him and I said, you know, Secretary Powell, what do you think makes a great leader? And without hesitation, he turned to me and said, you know, you're a great leader when people will follow you only if it's if it's even if it's only out of curiosity. And then uh, on top, and then to play the reverse of that, a friend of mine has a great expression. He said, if you're leading and you turn around and nobody's behind you, you're simply out for a stroll. <laughs> and so I think that somewhere between those two points is what you have to be able to do, especially, and you know, this doesn't just pertain to business. This is also family. I mean, it's like you can't, you know, if you want to be married for a long time, I would say dictating is not going to make it work. You know, <laughs> you've you've got to have a level where you're talking to each other. And especially when it comes to raising kids, which is really difficult sometimes for, for parents. But you've got to be able to somehow talk about and decide how you're going to handle something. And I think it's the same in business. I don't think there's that much of a difference. I mean, I think that in that change that we made at the cookie company, it would not have been successful if the whole team had not joined together. Even even if much of it was my own ideas and much of it was where I wanted to take us, but letting them have buy-in to all of that made it a tremendous difference. And I'll tell you this, here, here's one of the things that, I don't know, it's not in my book, but I remembered actually today, because today happens to be the 43rd anniversary, today, June wow. 30th. This is the 43rd anniversary of the opening of the cookie company. It's also the day that I launched my new website, which is michaelcoles.com. But most importantly, when I started thinking about all of the changes that we have made, I remembered there was my team at the end of all this. And I mean, we worked, we did two years worth of work in like five months. I mean, it was 24 hours a day 
constantly working and, and, and making things the way we needed to make them. And at the end of it, my team gave me a, a thing that talked about teamwork and all of them signed it, you know, and gave it to me at the end of it. And I had worked them like dogs, honestly, but they all felt so inspired by the fact that we had changed the company in such a significant way. And they all had something to do with it. And I want you to just think about this for just one minute. That was eight years in, and we are 43 years in now. Company's wow. still there. That, that, that's amazing. Um, and I mean, for them to work that hard and then feel, you know, from their point of view that it was about the team, I think speaks a lot to letting them be part of the mission and the strategy <laughs> right now. It's, it's interesting though. So you eventually go on to Caribou Coffee, right? And I know you tell a story in the book about how maybe you didn't approach that in the best way possible to start, but eventually you kind of turn that team around as well. So tell me a little bit about that story. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, also in the book, it talk, you talk about the fact I ran for public office, you know, I mm-hmm. ran for the I ran for the House of Representatives and I also ran for the U.S. Senate. And you would think somewhere along the line of doing those things where you do make a number of mistakes that you, you know, your communication skills would come up to a different level. And uh, yeah, so Caribou, I, I basically began negotiating a process where I would buy into the company and I would go to Minneapolis and become the CEO. And that process took somewhere around four or five months. And so I had four or five months knowing that the current CEO was going to be gone and I was going to be coming in as the new CEO. And I had plenty of time to think about what I was going to say to the leadership team. So I came into Caribou Coffee and I, and I knew that I had to be a disruptor. Caribou was very casual. I mean, it was, it was, I would say that it was business casual that had gone astray over the top. You know, it meant, well, I knew it when I walked through the building the first time I was there. And I saw someone walking around without shoes, you know, thinking to myself, <laughs> you know, this is this is beyond business casual. And it wasn't so much that I wanted to create a really strict environment, but I had to create an environment that was more professional where people, they could dress whatever the way they want. I didn't really care, but we had to get to a point where people started realizing this is a serious business. You know, we have to make money. We have to do all the things. We have to keep a great culture. We have to take care of customers. We just have to be, we have to be different. And so I showed up in a three-piece suit, which I did deliberately because it was so, such a contrast to the way everyone else dressed in the building. And that would have probably gone over okay at some point, but my, and I had been to 50 caribous uh, during my process of determining whether or not the company really had a real future. So I'd made a number of yeah, I've gone all, I, mean, I was in Washington, Chicago, Atlanta, and Minneapolis. And my opening line to this t- team of 21 leaders of the company was, I've been to over 50 caribou coffees, and I've yet to have a good experience. <laughs> and brutal. as the words were coming out of my mouth, I could see all 21 of these people completely disengaging with me. They didn't care what I had to say after that. Now, do you remember? The, I'm sure I don't know how whether you or many people in your audience have ever seen the movie A Christmas Story. But there's a great scene in A Christmas Story where Ralphie gets out of the car to help his father fix a flat tire. His mother tells him to go out, 
And so Ralphie goes out to select his father and he steps on the hubcap and all of the nuts go flying up in the air. And Ralphie yells out, oh, fudge. But Ralphie doesn't actually say fudge. He says the queen mother of all cuss words and gets into a lot of trouble. What I meant to say that morning at Caribou Coffee was I've been to over 50 Caribou Coffees. And while I've had a good experience at all of them in part of the day, it was not consistent. If we can create a service platform that's consistent throughout the whole day, we can build a great company. But that's not what I said. (laughs) So I wound up having to say that to 20 people individually. And fortunately, we had a town hall meeting that same day that I got there. And I got to kind of say it the right way to maybe the 150 people that were in this room that worked, that were not part of the senior leadership team, but were all important people for the company. And so I I actually wound up having a little better buy-in with some of those folks than I did with my own leadership team. But eventually, you know, we turned it around. We created a new mission statement. We created a set of great core values. We created an unbelievable service platform. And in a very, very short period of time, in 90 days, when we implemented the platform, within that next 30 days, we began to turn the company around to the point where a company that had been losing same-store sales for almost three years, uh, less than a year and a half later, we were able to take the company public. Yeah, amazing. Uh, I, I seem to remember kind of coming out of that as well. I think part of your strategy to transform the company or, or to get people's buy-in, I guess I should say, was targeting a few folks who you knew, uh, I guess, were likely to buy into the strategy and building relationships with them and then leveraging that to build relationships with the rest of the team. Well, you know, and and, and here's, the, here's the other thing I would say that this was a very different situation for me. You know, my career, basically, from the time I went on the road, uh, where when I was a salesman until I started hiring people to actually work for me, and then I became a sales manager, and then a national sales manager, I was hiring people, and they were buying into my vision of, of what I wanted to do when I started the cookie company. Even in the beginning, you know, we were hiring people, we were telling them what we thought we could do, where we thought we could go. I never really connected to the fact that these people didn't know me at all. They didn't know me from Adam's house cat. They had their own ideas of what the company could be and what the company, and this again, this is right in your line for your show, which is all about communication. Mm -hmm. What I probably should have done in that meeting, even now thinking about it, I should have done what Irving taught me to do, which was ask some questions. Mm -hmm. Where do you all see the company? What do you think we should do? Where do you think we should go? I should not have walked in telling them what we needed to do. I should have listened more. And that's what I wound up having to do over the next couple of months to, to kind of get that buy-in uh, for people. And they eventually did. I mean, and then, you know, then, of course, when you implement something and the results start to happen, as the, you know, as the old saying goes, success has many fathers, failure is an orphan. So you know, uh, we, we began to have more and more people coming on board. We lost a few people along the way. Uh, We turned over almost all of our hourly people with the new service platform. We turned over probably a third or two, maybe half of our store managers, but it was because they came to work for a different company than we were going to become. 
And, you know, I'm very proud of what we were able to do with Caribou. So again, here's a company still going. So I I didn't do that much damage. So it was fine. <laughs> you created a number of companies or or led a number of companies that are still going. So that's that's awesome. But first, have you guys ever struggled to gain traction driving paid traffic while it seems like your competitors are just having a lot more success? If so, then you're gonna love what I put together for you. I mean, how about a free analysis of you versus your top three competitors? to gain clarity around what is really working and what isn't and where the opportunities are. Does that sound good? Well, I've partnered with some of the best in the paid traffic business to create inflection marketing. I only partner with the best. No one has more experience. These guys have been doing it since 2001, and they've been helping companies win paid traffic across all channels, including Google, Microsoft, and Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Amazon. And here's the best part. For anyone who sets up a consultation appointment, we'll provide you with a free competitive analysis comparing your pay-per-click advertising versus your competitors, looking at things like messaging, keywords, volume, and cost per click. And there's no obligation for this. It'll give you the foundation that you need to succeed, whether you decide to work with us or not. So to learn more about how we can help you take your digital marketing game to the next level and drive a true inflection in your paid traffic, as well as get your complimentary competitive analysis, go to gregjrice.com backslash inflection. That's gregjrice.com backslash inflection to schedule a quick discussion to see if there may be a fit here or not. So with that, let's dive into our interview. To change topics a little bit, you mentioned your cycling career and the amazing feats that you've done of cycling all the way across country, which is unimaginable to me, but amazing. And I, I know that you learned some lessons around teamwork through that. So I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of key takeaways that you took away from teamwork, which, as you mentioned, influenced what you did at the cookie company. So I hadn't been on a bicycle uh, since I had been a kid, really. Uh, my wife and I bought some bikes when we first got together, but, you know, they basically rode them a couple of times and they wound up like a lot of bikes that wind up in the garage. And then you try to figure out where to hang them out of the way so they don't take <laughs> up so much room. But, you know, we started the cookie company with very little money. I had a, a severe motorcycle accident uh, that basically I woke up in the hospital six weeks after we started the company and basically a doctor standing over me telling me I was going to live but involved, been involved in a near fatal motorcycle accident. And I would probably never walk normally again. I would always need some type of aid, either canes or crutches. And so, you know, through circumstance, about nine months after my accident, I mean, I figured waking up, I mean, I was lucky to wake up. And so I started, was doing the rehab program. Doctors had uh, subscribed or prescribed, prescribed. And uh, I started doing that program. But Nine, about nine months after the accident, I was still on two canes. And my daughter, Karen, was three years old, asked me to race her to the mailbox. And when I took off to run, I figured even on two canes, I could beat this little kid up the, up the driveway. The pain was just excruciating. It was the first time since my accident that I really realized I was disabled. But it wasn't so much disabled in my legs. It was disabled in my mind. As I said, my dad went bankrupt when I was 10. I grew up as a really poor kid, I had to go to work when I was very young. And throughout my life, people always told me what my limits were. And it always gave me an incentive to prove them wrong. But this time, I was living in a safety zone that doctors had given me. Because I can tell you, at 33, learning how to walk again really hurts. <laughs> and so I began 
self-styled rehabilitation program that eventually took me from a stationary bike to a regular bike. I started riding longer and longer distances from my house. And like a lot of things in my life, I got carried away with it. And so in 1982, I set a record riding from, uh, well, let me just say this. We invested $8,000 to start the company. By the time I learned to not only walk again, but ride my bike, I set three world records riding across the United States on a bicycle. We built a company to over $100 million in sales from that $8,000 investment. And I set a record in 1982 to ride from Savannah, Georgia, to San Diego, California, in a little, about 15 and a half days. In 1983, I attempted to break my record. I was on a sub-nine-day record. I went across the country, broken my record by probably almost a week. But I got hit less than 500 miles from San Diego, just outside of uh, Tucson, Arizona, blown off my bike by a dust devil, which is a dwarf tornado, broke my collarbone, the ride was over. 1984, uh, anybody who rides a bike will know what I'm talking about. I had headwinds from the time I started uh, all the way to California that got up to 70 miles an hour. There's actually a documentary that was done uh, that is, it's actually on my website. It's also available on, uh, on uh, YouTube. At any rate, I broke my record by over four days uh, across the country, 11 days, eight hours, 15 minutes. And then in 1989, I joined a four-man team to do the Race Across America, which went from L.A. to New York, uh, about distance of about 3,000 miles. We won the Race Across America. We crossed the country in five days, one hour, eight minutes about 600 miles a day. It's the fastest crossing of America ever by a four-man team. And it's the fastest 3,000 miles ever covered under human power. And I'm proud to be here with you tonight and tell you that both, both records still stand. That's amazing. All these many years later, yeah. Now the, so, the... so now let me hear about teamwork. So here's, <laughs> the, here's, the, here's going back to your question. So how does that relate to teamwork? Think about this. When, when you're going out, and this is any sport, if you don't understand teamwork, you'll never get anybody to help you make it. Because think about what happens. At the end, of it, if you're successful, you get the record. You get the glory. You get to go on talk shows. You get to go talk to people. You go to sign autographs. That team that was there, they don't get to do any of that. But they have to understand why you're doing it and why it's important and how it's going to send the message out to other people. And that's what my team was able to do. They rallied behind what the idea was to be able to set this record and then communicate to people that you just can't give up. You can't quit. Very cool. Very cool. Now, one other area I want to kind of dive into with you because I'm fascinated by it is the runs for office and the, process of communicating with so many different people across the state, right? Who are likely have different backgrounds, different needs. I just, I, you know, I've never been part of that process, but it's always fascinating me on how to connect with folks and talk to them and listen to them and understand them and build rapport with them. So I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, I had an advantage. Uh, one, I was not a politician <laughs> and I approached it with the idea that first I wanted to listen. Again, I mean, obviously, you have a stump speech. I didn't really have a real stump speech. I mean, my I went and talked to people based in the different areas around the state, knowing the things that I thought were probably important to them and knowing 
what I, you know, what I believed in. I didn't run a campaign based on polling. I ran a campaign based on the things I believed, you know, and that's what uh, allowed me to be able to talk to people and communicate with them in a way that was sincere. And so I didn't have to think about what did I say in Savannah as compared to what should I say in Augusta or in Columbus, Georgia. I mean, I was on, you know, it's, you know, the, my mother, I remember this as a kid. My mother once said to me uh, when I was growing up, she said, remember, you'll always remember the truth, but you'll have a lot of complications with a lie because it gets complicated about when you, especially as the, as the lies go on, trying to remember them all. But the truth is easy to remember. And so I ran the cam- a campaign like that. It was, a, you know, it was disappointing to not win. But on the other hand, you know, I learned a lot about what uh, was important to to me and to the people that uh, voted for me and supported me and came out and rallied for me. And so when the campaigns were over, it wasn't like I walked away from I I couldn't do all the things I wanted to try to do. And God only knows if I could have done any of them, you know, the way the way Congress works today. (laughs) But but my wife and I were very diligent about thinking about the couple of things that we could help with. We've been big advocates of education. So we've set up several scholarship funds. I became very passionate about veterans and veterans benefits. Mm -hmm. And so we're establishing right now a a scholarship fund for veterans. And you learn that, you know, I, I, again, I did, I stepped out of the political arena, but I didn't step out of being a good corporate citizen or, and a good commu- good citizen of my own community. And here we are in Jackson. I've only been here four years. My wife went on the Hospital Auxiliary Board. I'm on the Hospital Foundation Board. I'm president of another nonprofit here. You know, I just feel like if you're for, everybody has something to offer, whether it's running for office or being in the, you know, in, in helping some nonprofit, you know, or helping an individual or doing something. Everybody can do something. And everybody needs to do something. Especially these days. We, I think we can all do a little bit more. Yeah. I know that I can. And it's important, important to do that. Um, I think it's also important, especially in the political world, uh, to be able to talk to folks who you disagree with and, and not just hate them or think that they're wrong from the start, right? You have to understand that they're good people too, just trying to live their lives. They might have a different viewpoint. You can agree to disagree, but you can still have a civil conversation. Right. You can disagree, but you don't have to be disagreeable. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So <laughs> just a couple more questions I'd like to ask everybody who I, ha- who I have on the show. The first one is that I really believe in kind of the power a single conversation can have in your life. So I always ask my guests if there is a specific conversation they can point to that had a really meaningful impact on the direction they ended up taking in their lives. Yeah. So, uh, again, most of this is in my book because um, I, I didn't write this book to boast about my career. I wrote this book because I feel coming from my own background and I've had a very good life and I've been very, I mean, I'm extraordinarily lucky in many, many ways, but I felt like my life was very, that people could identify with the kind of success I've had. It's not like Bill Gates' success. It's not like Steve Jobs' success. It's success, but it's, it's success I felt like that could really motivate people where they could just the last line of my book 
is I know you can do this because I did. And if, as you go through the book, it's more about things that went wrong than things that went right. It's more about how you learn from mistakes. And so I would say that it was this. I, I won a sales contest when I was 23. I was flying. My company flew me back first class to Detroit, uh, where I wasn't living. I'd take a, a plane from Detroit to Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is where I live. But the guy that I flew next to, was he lived in Detroit. And today, he wouldn't be on a commercial plane. He probably would have been on a private plane. It was the first time I'd ever seen a Rolex in real life. And so I knew he was a successful guy. I was taught, I was talking to him the whole way from New York to Detroit. And he was more interested in me again. Now I look, you know, I look back at it now. This guy was a great communicator. He was more interested in talking, letting me talk about me than he was to talk about himself. But at the very end of the flight, as we were about to land, I turned to him and I said, what, what advice would you give? a young guy like me that's about to set out into the business world. And again, he looked at me and he just said, stepping out in the business world to be, try to be successful, it's all about risk. He says, take as many risks as you can, as early as you can, mm -hmm. because the older you get, the more complicated your life's going to get and the less apt you're going to be to want to make the, take those risks. And that, that flight, that, those words changed my life. It's amazing. And here I am. And here I am all these years later. I'm still talking about it. that's I, mean, I can just <laughs> zero. I can just zero right in on that. Know that it made a huge difference. And then you know, there's a story in my book about after winning the sales contest, I left the company that I was with. I finally started making some money and I quit and went and took a different job. I don't think I would have done it had the guy not said that to me. And then from there, obviously, took a lot of entrepreneurial risk a number of times to get things going. So that it's amazing the power one conversation can have on your life and to think what direction you might have gone and had you not had that conversation. You know, I, that, that just fascinates me. So second question, everything that you've accomplished in your life, as you look back, if there was one communication skill you could have had in more abundance, that would have made it all a lot easier. What would that have been? Uh, I think because I started working when I was so young. In business at 13, I mean, I had I worked in 11 and 12, but I mean, I was actually working in a, in a store and, you know, being employed. And Irving Settler, who owned this shop, Dorman's Ivy Shop, he was such a, he was a little guy. He was a very small guy, but he was so big and so smart. And he seemed to know everything. I mean, he, well, he did. He knew everything. Uh, and if he didn't know everything, he knew a little bit about everything to make it seem like he knew it. And so I think the one thing that took me a long time to learn is that I didn't have to be the smartest guy in the room. I didn't have to know everything. I had, I had to know a little bit about everything and that I didn't have to have the answer to everything, that I could trust the people around me. If I hired people that were really good at what they did and I didn't have to worry about you know, especially when I was working for somebody else and I was hiring like a sales force, you know, I don't know, looking back, did I not want to hire people who were better than me? Did I, did I not hire someone who I thought might be as good as me or better than me because I wanted to make sure I could maintain my position? I don't think I did that. But I think that's a hard lesson to learn for a lot of people that, you, you need to surround yourself with really smart people, let them excel at what they do, 
because the truth of the matter is they're going to make you look better. And I learned that lesson early on, but I probably wish I had learned it even sooner. I learned it, you know, at the cookie company. That's where I really learned it. Mm -hmm. And before that, I'm sure I fumbled a number of times. I think it's also hard for leaders to not, well, certain leaders anyway, to feel like they don't know the answer because they feel like it's kind of their job to know the answer to everything, but you just can't. A great leader knows what they don't know. Mm-hmm. That's what a great leader does. You know what you don't know. So I I can tell you this. I'm not anywhere near as smart as anybody might think I am, but I've had a lot of smart people around me that made me look really smart. <laughs> so oh, That's great. Uh, so last question for you. Who's the best communicator that you know, either know personally or know of, and why do you say that about it? Well, unfortunately, the person that I would tell you, somebody probably, maybe somebody on your audience may know who's no longer passed away this past year. Kennesaw State University, uh, which is a school that I'm very close to. My wife and I endowed the business school at Kennesaw State University. It's the Michael J. Cole's College of Business. And Betty Siegel is the former president. She was the first woman, female president in the state of Georgia. And she was one of the first female presidents, which became president in the whole country for a major university. And she was by far the best communicator I've ever seen. Betty Siegel could capture a group, I mean, from from 10 people in a room to 10,000 people in a room. She had a way of connecting and delivering a message that was incredible. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say that she never made a mistake because that's not true. I mean, I'm not well, easily going to say that maybe we had, because I was, I was chairman of the foundation for the university and we had plenty of arguments, but boy, when you sat in a room with her one-on-one, she could just make you believe that whatever she was saying was what they needed to do. And you'd walk out of the room going, what just happened? What just happened? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She was very articulate, very passionate. Um, she had all the skills that you want to be a great communicator, which is to show passion, honesty, and a sense of understanding what the, what the group is expecting uh, of you and, and kind of being vulnerable in a lot of ways where you don't have to just, you know, absolutely not look as if uh, you could never make a mistake. And if you did, you don't have to be afraid to admit it. So she was a great communicator. I mean, you know, there's the others that are obvious, you know, I mean, Colin Powell, I was fortunate to meet him. He's a great communicator. Sal Miller, former governor of Georgia, was an amazing uh, communicator, probably one of the few governors in the whole country that has the kind of lasting legacy created the Hope Scholarship, which is free. If you maintain a a three-point average in high school, you got got to go to school in any Georgia school for free. Amazing. And then had pre-K program. And just these these were people who were just incredible communicators. So, well, so final last question for you: Where can folks find you? I know you mentioned the website, so tell us about that. Tell us where they can find the book and any anything you so, like about where people can connect with you. Sure. Uh, you know, COVID nineteen has. Uh, I had about I had a number of speaking engagements, 
that all got canceled. So we've been doing a lot of podcasts and other ways to try to keep the message going. The book's available on Amazon in both hardback and uh, as well as Kindle. Barnes & Noble has the book. And you can also get it from UGA Press and, and on my website, michaelcoles.com. And there's a lot of information on the site, how to get in touch with me. And if anybody would like me to come speak, um, you know, you can reach me that way as well. And the title of the book, the exact title so you can find it? Yeah, it's uh, Time to Get Tough, How Cookies, Coffee, and a Crash Led to Success in Business and Life. And it's really a book about business, but it's not just for business. It's really about how to lead a good life and how to find success. Yeah, and I can attest to it. It's, it's a great read and a great story as well as uh, obviously just a fortune of business lessons and life lessons in there as well. So I, I highly recommend it. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, Michael, thank you so much for the time today. That was a great conversation. Um, I had a lot of fun and I learned a lot specifically about leadership, I think, and how to lead and communicate more effectively from a leadership perspective. So thank you for that. Well, I always learn something too. So thanks for having me on. Sure thing. Don't let the momentum stop now. Continue your path towards connecting at another level by joining the Communication Nation. We'll be discussing today's topics as well as more real-world solutions to transforming your life personally and professionally at facebook.com slash groups slash join the communication nation. Remember, you're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and life. And that conversation starts right here on The Art of Communication.